Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, I, I can hardly imagine the things that were going through your mind um, as, you, as you pondered this final week of your, uh, of your public ministry and, and all that it would lead to. And we know that you knew because you told many times, well, well ahead of time, exactly what was going to happen. And yet I, I remain astonished, Lord, that uh, you, you remain teaching and, and loving up to the very end. And um, you weren't overwhelmed with grief and you weren't hiding out but you were openly speaking and teaching in the temple. And I thank you for, I thank you for this courage, Lord. And whatever our troubles, our, our sorrows, maybe our depressions, um, we, uh, we ask, Lord, that, um, uh, that we too can remember that even when we feel perhaps like we'd rather not come out of our room, that it's important for us to get up and move and get about and do the things we need to do for the good of souls. So help us, Lord, save us, have mercy upon us, and keep us always by your holy grace. Amen. All right. Um, so today we're going to look at what, what was Jesus doing on Monday of Holy Week? Now, a couple of important things to say. I'm using the Synoptic Gospels. Now, most of you are aware the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called Synoptic because they look alike. Uh, sin like with and optic meaning, you know, to see. So their main details are very similar. The material they cover is quite similar. There are aspects where each of them are independent and have something that only they report. But at the end of the day, the overview is pretty similar. Now, John's gospel stands apart. He sort of presumes you've already read the synoptics and he covers other aspects. Uh, in this um, passion type chronology that we're going through, I draw then from all three of the synoptic gospels, which report some similar things, but also add details. And between the three of them, we have a fairly complete picture of the actual things that Jesus was doing on, the, on each day of Holy Week. Now, uh, what's odd is if you go to the Roman Rite Mass today, or you, well, you, if you read the readings for today, let's put it that way, it's a little misleading, isn't it? Because it sets today's readings, it says six days before Passover. Well, that's actually Saturday before Palm Sunday, so it took us back in time to a different place. And I don't know why, there's probably some reason for that historically. But um, uh, that that is not what we're that's not what was going on today in Jesus' life. So what was going on today? Now, as I as I look to these things, there are going to be some biblical scholars who go tisk tisk. You're trying to read too much chrono chronological history into this and and so on. But um, I say, well, no, I, I do want to take the scriptures as a as a basic historical source. I realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke sort of pin these events together in slightly different ways, but they all kind of add up to paint a complete picture. So um, I, I'm not going to apologize too much to some of these biblical scholars that, that, that get a little bit upset when people like me try to take all these different pieces and put them together in a coherent whole, okay? 
So with that in mind, I think we get a pretty good picture today of what the Lord did. Now, the main event here on Monday of Holy Week is, is that he cleansed the temple. All right, that's what we're heading for. But there are other things that happen on this day as well. So let's remember now yesterday. Yesterday, of course, was the great triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He had been up in Bethany. Uh, it, it seems likely that he, had, he, he was staying in Bethany at the house of Mar- Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And then he came down on that Sunday uh, into Jerusalem, and he was greeted by multitudes who shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, some of the temple leaders were very upset, and they told him to silence the disciples. And he said, look, if I told them to be quiet, the very rocks would cry out, you know. So, uh, And uh, now, as as he entered in, there's only just this mention at the end of yesterday um, at the end of Mark 11 and the 11th, cha- and the 11th chapter and the 11th verse, having made this triumphal entry, Jesus went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, for some of you who have been to the Holy Land, you can appreciate what I'm saying here. The temple, the temple is kind of on the top of a, of a hill called, um, you know, up, up there in Mount Moriah. And it, it drops down into a valley called the Kidron Valley, and 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 then goes across to another hill called uh, again the uh, the Mount uh, um, the um, um, you know right there in the Kidron Valley at the base of it is where we would have like the Mount of Olives. I'm sorry, that is the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives, we have the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so all those places are kind of tied together and they're very close together. So as they go down that hill from the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley and back up that steep incline to the top of the, um, to the, top of the Mount of Olives. And then uh, a little bit further over that hill, maybe about a mile and a half, is Bethany. And it's right there at the top of that hill. So it's a very, very close in town or village um, that uh, you can go to today. I was there in my last trip there and uh, saw the tomb of Lazarus and so on. So it simply says again, on sat- Sunday night, last night, the Lord went up into the, he, he, after he looked into the temple courts, it was already late. So he went back out and up across the hill, uh, the Mount of Olives to Bethany with the 12. All right. Likely to the house of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. All right. Um, now, um, the very next morning, Monday, today, this morning, Jesus gets up. And it says he arises. And I'm going to guess that, you know, people got up pretty early in that in that place, they basically get up with the sun around 6 a.m. And maybe after a light meal of some sort, he begins to move back toward uh, Jerusalem. So as he comes then over, the, and if you've ever been there, you know, that beautiful view of Jerusalem at the top of the Mount of Olives, right? Uh, according to Luke 19, um, the next morning, Jesus gets up and, and, and moves towards Jerusalem. And Luke recounts that as he comes over the crest of the hill of the Mount of Olives, he wept. So here's what the text says, Luke 19 and verse 41 and following. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but for now it is hid from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize this time of your visitation from God. 
And so here comes this pivotal moment where if only Israel would recognize him as their Messiah, turn to him, he would teach them the ways it would make for peace. But they wouldn't. They're stubbornly refusing. And now, not every Jew, but corporately speaking, they're stubbornly refusing. And it's very, very tragic in Jesus' eyes. He wept. Now, some of you who have been there know there's a little uh, chapel there about a little that way down the hill of the Mount of Olives called Dominus Flevit. It means the Lord wept in Latin, and it's in the shape of a teardrop, right? And uh, it's a it's a, a quite a scene in there as you go into that chapel and you see all Jerusalem laid out before you. So, so as he's coming down from Bethany to go down into the temple area, he weeps. He weeps. You know what? We, of course, he's prophesying here, is he not? Um, that um, one day Jerusalem would be destroyed. Now that would happen 40 years later in 70 AD, but it did happen. And the, and the, the, the Romans did in fact surround and destroy Jerusalem and over a million Jews lost their lives in that war. It was a terrible, tragic thing. And um, the Lord certainly never said any of this glibly, never vengefully, but he wept, he wept. And, um, so this is the first thing we see, the first thing on this Monday morning. The Lord leaves Bethany, comes down the hillside, sees Jerusalem, and weeps. Now, as we go a little further down the hill, uh, Mark recalls uh, an interesting little event. Um, it's from Mark chapter 11, and in the 12th verse and following. The next day, after they had left Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if there was any fruit on it. But when he reached it, he found nothing on it except leaves, since it was not the season for figs. Uh, and uh, since it was not the season for, for figs, he then said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And his disciples heard this statement. Now, this seemed like a kind of a, I don't know, flash of anger, irritation on the part of Jesus. It's an odd little story. But first of all, let's realize that the fig tree here represents uh, Israel or the, the, the Jewish people. And um, there are other places, again, where we can look to in the scriptures, and I'll mention them to you in a minute. But it is an odd thing here, though. He looks for fruits, figs, you know, in the branches and finding none. And then there's this observation. It was not the season for figs. Now, you and I think, well, then why is he so upset that there's no figs? It's not the season for figs. Because what the text really means is, it's kind of a little awkward in the way it's worded, is if it was the season for figs, you wouldn't find figs because they would have been harvested, right? They would have all been removed from the tree. But as it is, it's the time now where the figs should be growing and getting close to maturity, uh, but there's nothing in the branches, just leaves. It's not bearing fruit. Uh, you remember the story of a, another fig tree that was growing, and uh, it, it bore no fruit. And so the man said, after, look, three years now, I've been looking for fruit, fruit from this fig tree, and it has yielded none. And the field hand says, well, let me look, work with it for one more year. And if there's no fruit, then you can cut it down, you see. And so, again, the, the, this is an image for Israel. This is an image for uh, the Jewish people at that time. And the Lord is looking for fruit. What fruit? Justice, love, mercy, but above all, faith, faith. And finding none, uh, he, he, he grows angry uh, with the tree and say, may no one ever eat from your branches again. And so we see um, this is a, a very interesting little episode on, the, uh, on this, this Monday morning of Holy Week as they're coming down the hillside. First, the Lord weeps over Jerusalem that will be destroyed for its lack of faith. And um, secondly, um, he, uh, he grows angry in a kind of a righteous anger that the fruit of faith is not to be found on the tree, see? 
angry about it. It says he was hungry. Hmm? He was hungry. Remember how he said to the woman at the well, I thirst. And you, you can just see that as a physical thirst or a physical hunger, but it's not. The real hunger, he's hungry for souls. He's hungry for people to come and know him and love him. He loves them. He created them to know him and love him and serve him. He's hungry for them. There's nothing in the branches, nothing. And so he's both sad and angry. By the way, the, the, the word anger in English can be, it comes from a Norse word, anger, which can be translated either grief or, or anger. See, they're often together, aren't they? Right? Right? Okay. Now, um, we see here, therefore, that, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. We're going to move on now to the main event. All right. So these two events coming down the hillside, and now he comes into Jerusalem. And on this side of the hill, you know, you, you come into Jerusalem, the temple's right there. I mean, it's like the door, the entry into the temple is just right there inside the city gate. So they come in. Now, so I'm at Mark 11 again. Now we're in verse 15, right? And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to, uh, to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is, is, is it not written that my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard of this and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. But, uh, but because all the crowd was astounded at his teaching. Okay, now, so let's talk a little bit about this. this is certainly a well-known event. Um, let's look at it from a couple of points of view. Why is he so angry about that this this morning? You know, he's throwing temple t- tables and chairs over, and so on. And to us, isn't that sinful? Are you allowed to you know get that angry uh, that you can start throwing things? <laughs> uh, likewise, why is he so angry? Um, don't they need to buy and sell animals? Isn't that part of what you know? You know, you got to go to the temple. You're going to make a sacrifice. Don't they need to, some place to buy and sell these things and so on? Um, and uh, but what's the ultimate meaning then also of this event? So let's look at those kinds of questions. First of all, um, his anger. Um, let's, let's first examine why he might be angry. And then we'll look at what the anger consists of. He, he gives a hint of it here in Mark's gospel. He says that, is it not written that my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? All right. Now, therefore, what was going on was, well, it may be true that when you go to the temple, you probably need a place to buy an animal or so, or maybe some pigeons or a lamb or something for sacrifice, if you couldn't bring it with you. Um, They were doing this, though, it, it would appear in the court of the Gentiles. See, so in other words, the part of the temple reserved for the Gentiles or the nations to pray was now being turned into a marketplace. So the only place for the Gentiles to come and pray is being run over by a market. And well, who cares about Gentiles and so on? Well, apparently the Lord does. And he considers this a kind of a, maybe put it in modern terms, a kind of a racist, um, smug attitude. Um, and uh, that the very part of the temple that should be reserved uh, for the Gentiles to pray has been turned into a marketplace. All right. He also calls it a den of thieves. Perhaps that indicates that he's also angry that there's some price gouging or something going on there that's unjust. Um, and then, uh, but again, so his anger is is is, is uh, related to his concern here for the Gentiles. 
Also, uh, then he starts throwing tables and chairs over. Now, to us in our culture, this would be an intolerable expression of anger. We would call it sinful. Um, however, Jesus is engaging here in something that's known kind of as a prophetic action, right? Prophets did dramatic things like this. This is kind of what, what they did. Now, they didn't always do it, but the point is, you remember, there, there's some odd times in the Bible where God tells the prophets to do some odd things, you know? So, for example, uh, one day, I think it's Jeremiah who's told to dig a hole in the wall, uh, in the city wall, and when people come by and say, what are you doing? He says, well, uh, I'm trying to escape because this is the only way out when, when we get surrounded by, by the Babylonians and we're going to be destroyed. So it's a prophetic action. It's something meant to gather attention and so on. Or uh, some other odd things like put your dirty underwear in a niche in the wall and then take it out and it's all rotten. <laughs> this represents the people. So sometimes prophets are told to do some very strange and exotic things. Um, um, I believe also Jeremiah was told to preach naked. Now, that doesn't mean butt naked, but he wasn't wearing his outer tunic. And um, so all of these are kind of unusual. They're called prophetic actions. Now, I think in our own culture, we do have something of this in civil disobedience, right? I remember back in September before the, uh, before the plague, uh, I was... I was going down to grand jury service downtown Washington and um, I had to get it, get in all the roads were blocked by these climate change activists who were sitting in the middle of the road, blocking all the main thoroughfares in Washington, the whole city kind of shut down and nobody can get in or out. And we all don't, we all don't like those kinds of things, but there is something though of a, of a tolerance for some degree of civil disobedience or civil actions meant to call attention. And even if we don't like it, we at least say, well, you know, we make some room for this sort of stuff in our culture. So maybe that's kind of the background as Jesus is throwing over the tables and the chairs and scattering the coins and so on. That it's not just a temper tantrum. He's not just in a rage, but that he's engaging in a prophetic action. Okay. A solemn, sovereign exercise of anger, but not, not a, a mindless rage or a temper tantrum. Okay. So do you follow? Hmm? All right. Now, but then what's the real message here? See. It is, yeah, he is concerned about the fact that the court of the Gentiles is being used and so on. But at the end of the day, and, and the temple leaders read this loud and clear. Basically, the Lord's message here is that temple worship is over. It's over. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is also the high priest. Jesus is also the lamb of sacrifice. He's also the altar. He's all of that. All those things pointed to him. And, and, and now that he is here, all of these things that pointed to him are to cease. And again, um, he is now both the temple, the altar, he's the priest and the lamb of sacrifice. So again, temple worship is over. And that was the message. And they received this loud and clear. Now, at one point, of course, you know, they misrepresent uh, what he says that uh, in John's gospel, for example, he says, you know, you destroy this temple. Um, and I'll raise it up in three days. Uh, he was talking, though, about the temple of his body. See, so this is why we say that this, this temple is no longer relevant. See, uh, now they later accused him of saying he would destroy the temple, right, and raise it up in three days. No, but he did very make, make it very clear that in the new covenant, temple worship is over. No need to go there because, again, we now have the Holy Mass. We had, the, we had the mystical body of Christ, one high priest, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one sacrifice, um, one high priest. And, 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 and all the other things that we do in our local churches are all tied into that one.
perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It fulfills all the things that the temple stuff pointed to. It's over now. Okay. And so that's the meaning, if you will, of this great prophetic event on this day. All right. Now, um, let's take a look at a couple of other things. Um, um, yeah. So again, this is, this is at the heart really of, of Monday. Um, uh, we're going to see here in just a few minutes. Uh, he will. Well, we'll see when we look at the at the thing tomorrow. Now, tomorrow is going to be a lot more material to look at than today. So today may be a little bit shorter, but you can count on tomorrow's se- section being a little bit longer, probably closer to an hour. Um, we're going to spend a little more time talking today, but we'd probably be more like between ha- half hour and forty minutes today. Okay, just so you know where we're going time wise. So l- let me get uh, though any questions right now. Uh, do you do you understand? Are there, are there any lingering questions or concerns or comments that you have about this gesture, this, this prophetic action of Jesus? Father, I, I've heard before that um, there were maybe two cleansing of the temples, one at the beginning of the ministry and one at the end of the ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, just wondering, is that just fantasy by some evangelical writers or whatever, or were there actually two cleansing? Well, see, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, see, John's gospel puts it at the beginning of Christ's ministry. And um, and uh, the synoptics put it here at the end. And so there's a question here. Is John talking about a separate cleansing of the temple or is he um, is he for theological reasons relocating that uh, into into his uh, into his narrative earlier in Christ's ministry? Um, I think that what we need to accept is that these the scriptures record the things that Jesus actually said and did. But they're not necessarily all recorded in an exact chronological order um, in the same way in all the Gospels. Uh, I think these events of uh, the final week of the Lord are pretty well brought together in the Synoptic Gospels. But there are even there some things where uh, one of the Gospel writers might read it. For example, the anointing of Jesus' feet. Did it happen more than once, or are some of it was one gospel writer? I think it's Luke relocating it to another time in Jesus' ministry for theological reasons. But none of them presuppose that they're simply telling a history like we tell it today in a literal, exact chronological order. They do experience some freedom to take the events of Christ's life and rework them and package them uh, in certain ways so that we see them. Uh, in, 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 in something together. So Jesus actually said and did these things. Now, I think, therefore, my answer would be there was only one cleansing of the temple. And John, for theological reasons, um, because he wants us to begin to focus on Christ's uh, identity as high priest and, and, uh, and, and he has a high Christology, wants this sovereign act to take place at the beginning. Um, but he's not denying that he, you know, he wouldn't necessarily deny that he relocated the event. But for for the sake of um, his his uh, the, the 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 saying of the gospels he wants okay and yes I think Peggy yeah you had your hand up when you mentioned that the gentile the um, gentiles were where they were selling the food and whatever they were selling um, and you you said that they were gentiles I'm thinking they're buying their food for their gods is that what that would say were they doing that this is the buying and selling of, of animals for Jews but oh oh so. So they yeah, didn't this, have any interaction with that. I was wondering well, if you were allowing them to buy sacrifice, you know, sacrifice animals for their the gods, and I was really flipped out with that. <laughs> no, um, no, no. That, this is go, this is definitely going on by and for the Jews. 
but they're doing it in the court, the part of the temple reserved for the Gentiles to pray in. Okay. To pray to their gods? No, to pray, well, to pray to God, to, to pray to the Lord God, Yahweh. There were some Gentiles who, 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 even if they had other gods, still thought they should pray to the, uh, God, the God of Israel. And there were also something, a group called proselytes, uh, who, uh, you know, were, 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 they followed the Jewish uh, religion. Um, and they weren't formal converts, but they, they had great respect for the Jewish people. So there was a place in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles that was reserved for them to pray, not so much, not so much to their gods, but to give honor to the Lord God, Yahweh. Mm. Yes. I'm sorry I wasn't clearer on that. Okay. Well, I, I didn't understand that. I was surprised. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Monsignor Pope, we're getting some questions in. Regarding, can you explain how the average Jew, would they have interpreted Jesus's action in the temple as a prophetic action? And would the Pharisees have recognized that as him kind of signaling the end of temple worship? Or would they not have really understood what was going on? No, I think they understood exactly what he was saying. <laughs> That's why they considered him such a threat. And by the way, Jesus wasn't the only one. The Essenes, you know, living out near the Dead Sea, they had written off the temple as so corrupt that nothing holy was taking place there any longer. So there were there were more than a few Jews who had been so disappointed in the corruptness of the temple and the temple leadership uh, and the greed and all that stuff that went with it that they had long since drawn back from, you know, temple worship. So, you know, there, this was already in the air, all right? Um, and I'm not saying that Jesus' disciples all held this, uh, but this was certainly something in the air that there were those who were saying that uh, the temple is in real trouble, and it's going to go first. Um, now, but that said, getting back to the other aspect of the question, you'll see tomorrow when we pick up the story that the very first thing that happens when Jesus comes back into the temple area is that he's confronted by the leadership. And they ask what, by what authority he did what he did yesterday. And, and again, he, he, we'll look at that in more detail tomorrow, but you can see already that they're saying, you know, you've engaged in a kind of a prophetic action. Where do you get your authority to call yourself a prophet? Well, who's, by whose authority would you engage in a prophetic action like this? So it's not like they're just accusing him of committing a crime of vandalism or what have you. Um, but but they, they do seem to have some understanding that this was more than just somebody losing his temper and throwing stuff, that he was engaging in something authoritative, which, which prophets were known to do. Uh, by the authority of God, uh, taking some exotic action like this. So um, I, that would be um, where I would uh, hopefully answer that question. Yes, um, th this was a prophetic action that people would have recognized it as such, um, would have been um, likely, uh, because already the, the leaders are, are asking basically for his prophetic credentials. Uh, Jane? It just seems that in the temple of selling the animals, they made a mess all of everything. It must have smelled really, really bad. And yeah. It just seems like they had such, such disdain even for the Gentiles. And, and I don't know, I, it seems like they felt they were so superior and they didn't really have to cater to them because they found them so inferior, even if they said, you know, they prayed yeah. to God. But it was certainly an act of contempt to be using yeah. selling animals yeah. in that part of the and again, I think that, uh, you know, there was certainly a place needed to do that. But, you know, usually if you go to Jerusalem today and you go near the sheep pools and stuff like that, there would be a gate right near the temple where there'd be a lot of sheep and other things available there where normally you would have bought and sold animals. But 
you know how it is. You want to have the gift shop inside <laughs> as well as a bigger <laughs> gift shop outside, you know, <laughs> and it's always about convenience. So, but again, all those are just ways of saying that I think um, it was an act of contempt, certainly. And Jesus saw it that way. Okay. And then is it Hayden? And then we'll move on. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Jesus's ministry was coming to an apex in that it was coming to the point of where he's, gonna you know go through the passion mm-hmm. and and address me seeing where it is that um this is the opportunity or this is the moment that to send a message to the people um in kind of like giving them planting a seed prior to what was going to happen the apex mm-hmm. yeah. so in essence um, persons could, after the event of the um, crucifixion and resurrection, they can look back and to, to say that, oh, wow, this is yes. what this really meant kind of thing. Right. Yes, indeed. And, and in fact, that's also hinted at in John's gospel that um, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. His disciples remembered this later when he rose from the dead on the third day. And they remembered that he had said this. So you're right. Uh, a lot of these events, you know, that took place live and might not have made immediate sense, looking back now makes sense. And our writers are writing from that perspective, not just uh, from the live perspective of what's going on in the current moment. Exactly. All right. Now, I don't know, Kelsey, if, if, if there's any questions and answers in that Q&A box that you wanted me to handle before I kind of begin to bring this day to a conclusion. Sure. One came in um, from a few different people in that is, would you be willing to speak a little bit more about the distinction between um, like anger being sinful in nature and righteous anger? Yeah, you know, I think St. Thomas distinguishes righteous or, or anger and, and sinful anger both by its object and its, its intensity or its um, valence. So clearly uh, for anger to be a righteous anger, it has, its object needs to be what you're angry about. In other words, needs to be a righteous anger. So perhaps there's an injustice of some kind. It's not just, you know, somebody disrespected me or didn't praise me or somebody else got the credit or, you know, some vainglorious, you know, little petty thing like that is going to tend to make um, uh, anger, you know, unrighteous, right? Uh, Or maybe I'm even dealing with, I never bothered to check out the information and I'm angry about something that didn't even happen or didn't happen the way I understand it. So in those kinds of cases, when the object is unrighteous, the anger is unrighteous. Now, if the object is righteous, then the uh, the anger can be righteous. However, we still then have to distinguish, even if I'm righteously angry, this doesn't just give me the ability to explosively vent it and yell and scream and call people names and do unproductive thing. Um, I, my, I need to focus my anger as a kind of an energy to, um, um, you know, to, um, you know, move the, 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 whatever it's causing the anger in the right direction. Um, so again, sometimes we can be, even if we're righteously angry, we're either too intense with it or sometimes not intense enough. You know, sometimes um, uh, we were not angry enough about something. So again, I, I think that the, the, the way to distinguish righteous and unrighteous anger is first of all, by the object. And secondly, is the intensity of it and it's, you know, the, the use of it or the expression of it, maybe I should say, uh, is, is, is that uh, measured, measured and productive and helpful, or is it destructive um, to, to, to the end? Okay. 
So again, Jesus does talk elsewhere about, you know, not growing angry with your brother, but he's talking about a particular kind of anger. There's that vengeful, hateful, I'll see you dead if I, if I, if I could, you know, I wish you were dead kind of anger. And that's the kind of an anger that's never righteous because we simply, you know, uh, want, want to see somebody harmed or hurt. And anything else? So when you talked about um, the fruit that didn't, that wasn't forming at the right time and Jesus got mad, and, and that's why we're talking about anger. That reminds me, every time I hear that Jesus hardens somebody's heart, like Pharaoh's heart, mm. I, I never understood that either. Yeah. This is kind of the same thing. It's like he's mad because he, I, I read somewhere uh, when I was reading about the Bible, that when, when somebody really wants one thing, and it's not a good thing, it's not what God wants, God just lets him have what he wants which is what it really means to um, hand them over. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And okay. I, well, I, I think I, re, I realize a lot of people are struggle a little bit with it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart or uh, where the Lord just hands somebody over and so on. Um, first of all, I think that we want to talk a little bit about primary causality. Um, we're very uncomfortable with primary causality. All right. But we have to accept the fact that God is the first cause of everything that takes place, good, bad or evil, because God holds all creation together in himself. He keeps everything in motion. He holds everything together. Um, you know, um, and so he's so let me give you an example of, of primary causality. So a bowling ball has gone down the alley and it's, it's knocking over the pin. So what's the primary cause of the pins falling over? And most people would say the ball It's not. It's the bowler. The bowler is the primary cause. The ball is the secondary cause of the pins being knocked over. Now, God sets things in motion, if you will, but he, he does more than just set them in motion and, and watch what happens, but he holds everything together while it's happening and facilitates everything. So I could not be speaking right now if God wasn't holding every fiber of my being together, helping me uh, to think and act and speak and all the air molecules, all the internet stuff that's going on. God is the first cause of all of that, all of that. And, he, and that's true even if I'm doing something evil, okay? And so that's, that means that God is the first cause. So when we speak of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we're not saying that Pharaoh was uh, forced by God to, uh, to you know, be stubborn, but rather that he, he was stubborn, but the first cause of his stubbornness isn't Pharaoh, it's God, because God is holding him together in being. <laughs> <laughs> and letting him continue to exist. Uh, and so we're not comfortable with primary causality in the modern world, but the ancient biblical people were more comfortable with it. They, they, they accepted God's sovereignty and that God, for, for reasons of his own, because we're free and so on, permit, permits things to go on that are against his, his own will, but in his permissive will, he permits to go on. And uh, they, but they also accepted the fact that God is the first cause of everything that is and happens. And we're just not comfortable. And I get that. But it doesn't mean that poor old Pharaoh, he's a nice guy and God twi twists him and forces him to have a hard heart. It's not, that's not what's going on. That's not what's being said there. Okay. It's <laughs> simply a recognition that God, uh, God holds Pharaoh in his hand. All right. And he's not overcome by Pharaoh. Now, as far as uh, God handing people over to their sins, that's always a last recourse, right? So God sends like you're, you're, you know, most of your parents, your first recourse when your kids are messing up, at least they're you're old enough to talk to them, is you, you talk to them, you try to teach them. And then if you, if you don't teach them, you know, when you, they still don't listen, 
you might do a little more teaching and then you have to maybe add a punishment. Well, now you're going to have to be in, you know, you know, be in your room for three hours or something until you start to do that. But, you know, there does finally sometimes come a point, especially when your kids are older and they're just simply not going to eat. Say, fine, have it your way. But I'm not going to come to the I'm not coming to jail this time to bail you out. You're on your own, buddy. You're on your own because that's the only way you're going to learn. So when it says God handed them over, uh, this is a kind of a final step that God takes so that a person can experience the absolute and full effects. I think that's what's happened in Western culture, that at some point we have now so stubbornly become secular that God says, all right, I'm going to let you now begin to experience the full effects. And that includes everything from complete sexual confusion. I mean, down to the point where people can't even figure out that they're male or female. That is very dark and confused. And that is not God's punishment. That's the effects of our sin. And he says, if you want to go on living as if I didn't exist and just make up your own truths and make up your own gods and carve your own little images and you're, you're free to do it. But I'm, I'm no longer going to I'm just going to step back and let you watch and see what happens. See, And so those are the kinds of things I think that are hard for us to accept. But it indicates that we come to a point where God has very few options except to say, have it your way. Have it your way. All right. Now, finally, then, to wrap up this, this day, remember Christ came down the hillside. He wept over Jerusalem. See, he's not glib about any of this, right? He comes. He sees a fig tree that represents. He curses it. He um, uh, comes down the hill. He goes into the temple, sees this going on, throws the tables over, and engages in a prophetic action. Now, it says simply this, um, uh, that at the end of this day, uh, again, this is from Matthew's gospel. Um, and he left them, the, temp- the, the people in the temple, and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So he goes back across the Kidron Valley, up that hillside, over the hill to Bethany, and stays the night. Okay? And that's how Monday ends. All right? We'll see tomorrow with Tuesday, uh, when the Lord gets up again early, he comes back down the hill, and we'll re-encounter that fig tree. <laughs> and we're going to find it withered now. <laughs> but that's where we'll begin to, tomorrow um, and so on, okay? So um, uh, now, again, I would ask you to remember um, that nothing's out of control, is there? I mean, you see the Lord is sovereign. He's doing what he does. And um, he's not cowering in fear, saying, oh, man, this is going to be the worst week of my life, and I'm just going to go cry and wait till it comes that he's teaching, he's preaching, and you'll see tomorrow, he gives them at least a dozen parables. And it's quite a, uh, quite a moment of teaching that he engages in. And um, so, you know, nobody takes my life from me, says the Lord, I lay it down freely, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it back up again. And so nothing is out of control here. And so we who are going through this plague, we have to maybe go to the Lord, we don't, it's not in our control, but, but God has to simply say nothing is out of control here. And that doesn't mean that all the human beings involved are making the right decisions. But again, God has always known the decisions that they would make, uh, whether they're being too stringent uh, on keeping us all locked down and destroying the economy for, or whether they're, um, they're not being stringent enough. Uh, and there's going to be many, 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 many more deaths. I, but God's nothing is out of control. God says, I've already provided. I'm already in your future. And I know how it all works out. So somewhere in all of this, I think uh, we want to maybe end on the, because of the situation that we're in, a reminder of the absolute sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Nothing is out of control. Everything is going exactly as planned. Okay. It's nothing spinning out of control. All right. Well, listen, we'll end with uh, a a quick prayer. 
Um, Lord, we thank you for um, this um, momentous day, remembered always as the great cleansing of the temple. And we ask you, Lord, to help us and teach us uh, its meaning, but also to keep us faithful to you um, in this holy week. As we walk with you, we walk alongside, we listen and we learn, and uh, we walk with you heart to heart. And we ask all these things, Jesus, in your holy name, you who are Lord forever and ever. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.